Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. The author who's going to join us is somebody who's been as prolific and as accomplished as anybody in the last 40 years. His first book was A Season on the Brink, taking you inside a season at Indiana basketball under Bob Knight. And since then, he has written so many books about all sports, tennis, golf, baseball, football. One of his most recent ones was the story of the 1968 Olympics and the protest that was made. And the title of the book is Raise a Fist, Take a Knee. All the way in between, he's giving you the inside story on individuals and events and stories. The person I'm talking about is John Feinstein. Now, his most recent book is about somebody I used to work with. Not a lot, but we worked for the same company. He's one of the biggest stars that golf has ever had when it came to televised golf. It's David Faraday. The book is Faraday about his life, his challenges, and what's now, including Live Golf, where he is kind of the face on the TV side of that property. This conversation, John Feinstein, David Faraday, now. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focus group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in the author, John Feinstein, and the subject, which is probably a good name for him, the subject, David Faraday. <laughs> good morning to both of you. How are you? Or is that the, the object? <laughs> yes, good. the object. Good. That's not I'm bad. Sorry. Good morning. Uh, David, let me let me start with you. Look, you you have been you, you've been pretty damn forthright throughout your career about about life beyond just you know talking into a microphone. When when John approached you, and I assume that was how this went, did you say, "Yeah, yeah, I want to do this right away"? You know, uh, John would probably answer that better than me. I'm I'm not sure that uh, <laughs> I uh, because we. I, it's not the first time that we we'd spoken about it, you know. Um, I, uh, I no, I think I was reluctant to be honest with you. Yeah, that that's accurate, Gary. Uh, David and I had actually talked about the possibility of someday doing a book uh, for a couple of years, right, David? And yeah, uh, we were we were at dinner um, at the Honda Classic. And I said, I think I said something along the lines of, are you any closer uh, to being willing to do a, a book that would honestly cover your life? And he said, yeah, yeah, I am ready. I, I think it's time, uh, David, you can speak to this, but people had been asking him or, or saying to him for years, he should do a book on his life because it's been such a remarkable life um, for both good and bad. Um, and he, and he said something to me, I don't know if you remember this, David, but it was incredibly flattering to me. He said, you're the only one I would trust to do it. And at that point we started working toward, yeah. you know, David, yeah, what, yeah. I recall that now the, the, um, it, it's interesting. John mentions early in the book about 
this first interlude. He's at PGA Tour orientation. You'd gone through Q School. You're already a very accomplished player. You'd been on a Ryder Cup team. And he heard you respond to basically a media consultant uh, who is basically telling you how to say nothing uh, in a word yeah. salad. If, you know, here's what you do and it'll never get you in trouble. And your response was, your, your response was, is there something wrong with just telling the truth? And John thought to himself, you know what? I know I like this guy already. I set that up by asking you this, telling all the truths in this book, was it hard at all? Yeah, it was. Um, not so much because I didn't want them out in the open, but, the, you know, some of them are just difficult to remember. Um, not not in a sense that, you know, I can't remember them, but it, it's, they're, they're kind of painful, you know. Yeah, I think I, I think that's true, Gary, um, obviously. But uh, I, I will say this, that David never backed away from any of the, the more difficult subjects we covered. He, he never once said, I don't want to talk about that. I, I, I don't want to go there. He did his very best to answer the questions. And there were times when he would say to me, you should talk to Anita about that. You should talk to my children about that. And, and, and I did. And they, they were remarkably... Um, helpful and, and cooperative and allowed me to sort of round out the stories where where David's memory either was was not perfect or, or where, as he said, it was painful to talk about. David, pain is, you know, people who have followed your career, you've given so much joy to so many people who like golf and you presented it in, in a way that was just there was a, this, you know, it was it was happy. It was fun. There was levity. It was frivolous. It's just golf. That's all it was. But there is a lot of pain that's part of, of your life's journey. Did sharing the pain in any way ease the pain? Uh, yeah, you know, um, with my foundation, you know, I've got a foundation for wounded uh, military. We, we have found that, you know, any time that you can talk about a traumatic event, um, you know, each time that you do, uh, your memory stores it in a slightly different way. Uh, you know, if you face up to it and lean into it, uh, that, uh, you know, the next time you talk about it, you know, it, it won't be so bad. So, yeah, I mean, I, I find the same thing in my life, you know, like the death of my son, which I, you know, I still don't like to talk about, but um, it, it's it's one of those things that each time I do talk uh, about him, you know, I remember him in a slightly fonder or, or uh, you know, a, a slightly better way, I, I think. John, um, you know, one of the things about, about this book is also talking about addiction and disease. And right. addiction and disease has touched your life. Um, what did you learn, if anything, ab about addiction and, and the disease of alcoholism that maybe you didn't already know? Well, as you said, I did know a good good bit about it, Gary, because my mom was an alcoholic. Um, but I also I learned from David that the ways we think of, oh, OK, go, go, go to um, and, and, and go to AA meetings and, and that'll fix it or or go away and that'll fix it. There's no one way to fix addiction. Uh, it's different for everybody. 
Uh, it's more difficult for some than others. Uh, I think David would attest to that. Uh, and you, you can't be judgmental of, of people who have an addiction because that's what it is. I mean, I, I laugh when, when, when I read where, you know, laugh kind of sadly when I read where someone admitted to being an alcoholic, (laughs) to me, that's not an admission that that's like saying you admitted to having cancer or any other disease. It's a disease and, and should be treated. I was able to treat it empathetically because of my mom. Others should treat it sympathetically. It's that simple to me. Um, I, I've talked about my own alcoholism here and other places. And David, I, I've never shared this anecdote before I went away. John talked about going away. I've done that. I've, I've gone away before yeah. I did. My, my mom, who has also been touched by alcoholism, not only because her son is an alcoholic, but others. She said to me, Gary, you have to understand something. You've effectively stood in the middle of your family and pulled the pin on a hand grenade. There's collateral damage all around you. And she wasn't doing that to hurt me. She was doing that for me to to understand that there is a lot of repairing that's going to have to be done beyond the repairing I'm going to try to do for myself. Is, Is that something that you're very aware of? You know, for me, uh, the, the whole going away, if, if, you know, that's the way you want to put it. it, it is, uh, I was being <laughs> kind, David. Um, it, it, it near, yeah, it, it nearly ended my life. Um, it, it was uh, a horrifying experience for me, rehab. Um, and, you know, I always, you know, think when I hear someone's a recovering alcoholic, you know, th- th- there's no recovery. Yeah, addicts know that, you know, you're, you're, uh, I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I'm just not drunk. Um, it's, uh, it's not something that you recover from. Uh, once an addict, always an addict. And, um, you know, I, I came to terms with that uh, relatively early in, in, in my, in the discovery of my disease. Um, but, you know, going to meetings or, or, or being in rehab, everyone's different. You know, I, I can see how that would work, you know, for some people. Um, but I, I resented the fact, you know, that uh, I had to go to rehab. I, I, I never got to the place where, you know, because they strip everything away from you, you know, they make your world so small. Um, I, I couldn't deal with it. Um, uh, you know, they t- took my shoelaces. Uh, I spent the first, you know, two and a half days in the psychiatric ward where, uh, you know, I was attached to a table at one stage. Um, there, there was a psychiatrist, a trainee, because they use you as uh, as guinea pigs uh, as well uh, up, at the, up at the Mayo. There was a trainee psychologist. This kid couldn't have been more than 25 years old who told me that, you know, my medicine my psych meds, you know, should be a, a reward for not drinking. Well, it was, I, I went for his throat. <laughs> you know, I, uh, you That's know, why I, I couldn't deal with it at all. Uh, and it, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's something that still, you know, for me, is, is, is that's a really painful memory. You know, John, and that's in the book. I mean, that, you know, yes. detailing, detailing David's, 
you know, aversion to, 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 to group therapy and being around other people in these, in these small groups and, and the whole rehab experience. Like he said, that's not hyperbole. He went there and he was literally at wit's end. He could not, he couldn't function. You know, when you're, when you're learning about this, did you have any awareness to that part of, of the, those various chapters of his life? You know, I, I had known that, that David had, had gone to rehab um, and we had we had talked about it because, as, as I said, my mom went to rehab. Uh, David lasted, what was it, 12 days, David, I believe, uh, before he left. And um, and that, yeah. that that was one of the things I was talking about, was saying that no one way is the right answer um, for an addict. Um, David, uh, Tom Watson uh, helped get David to a, an AA group that helped. And then bicycling became. Yeah. AA meeting and now shooting is his AA meeting and it, the the point that, that that David made is true you never stop being an addict um, you know I, I mean I'll be honest I, I I know my mother was an addict and I've never been addicted to alcohol but I am addicted to food and de- de- David can certainly testify to that um, and I I don't say that as a joke I mean I have trouble. that's the hardest that's the Go ahead. No, that's the hardest uh, of, of all, all the addictions to kick because you have to eat. You know, I mean, if I had to, to drink a little every will have to eat. And, and, and food addiction is the, the very... Right. It's harder than heroin. It's right. harder than... Dangerous in different ways. It's harder than any of those things, you know, to, to kick. Right. And 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 so the point being that David is correct, that if you're an addict, you're an addict and uh, you just have to find different ways to deal with it. David has found different ways to deal with it in, in, in the last few years. And I think having a great marriage has also helped him deal with it, um, because if you're happier, yeah. you're less likely to drink or you're less likely to overeat, whatever it might be. There, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it alone. Not a chance. I mean, I, I, I've had incredible support, starting with my wife and with people around me. You mentioned Tom Watson, John, and I remember the, the, the episode of Faraday when you're sitting in that barn and you're reliving, you know, that, that, that moment in your life when he looked at you and he said, you're, you're not well. But I didn't know, and when yeah. John and I were putting this together, I asked him, I said, did you know Nicholas's role in this? And he said, I didn't know it until he told me. And the, and the role that Jack played was that, that, that Tom was ready, David, to tell you that you needed help. But he was, he was more than ready because he knew, like, like other alcoholics and addicts, you'll, <laughs> you'll repel against the idea. And he said, no, 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 don't, don't tell me you can't get there. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you there on air bare yeah. because Jack's right here and he's going to give you the plane. I just I want you to share with people just your memories of that episode in your life when someone put out his hand and said, I'm going to walk. With you. I've been down this road myself. And then this other guy who, who's not, but he's here to help you as well. Yeah, it was at Prince Edward Island. It was a made for television thing for uh, Canadian TV, Jack Nicholas versus Tom Watson. And, and uh, to make the story, the story short, um, 
I was interviewing uh, both Jack and Tom upstairs in the clubhouse. I'd already interviewed Jack and, and it was in the middle of, well, uh, at the start of interviewing Tom when he stopped me. And uh, I was in a, just a, a god-awful place, um, you know, dr drinking a bottle and a half of Bushmills a day, taking whatever pills I could. And, uh, you know, cocaine was in my life at, the, at that stage as well. Well, I was just, you know, in, in the worst possible spot. I couldn't wait to get back to my room, to the, you know, the, to the bar. And I said, no, no I'm not. Uh, and uh, he said, you, uh, I said, how do, how do you know? And uh, he looked at me and he says, I, I, I can see it in your eyes. And uh, I said, well, what do you see? And he said, I see my reflection. Mm. And um, I, I didn't know at the time that Tom was an alcoholic, um, you, you know, and he said, you need to come with me. Uh, I said, you know, to where? He said, to, to Kansas City, to my meeting. And right now I'm trying to backpedal. You know, I said, well, hey, you know, we need two kayaks and a float plane to get to Toronto. How are we going to get to Kansas City? And um, I hear from behind me, you know, I have a G5. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been... Uh, I'm being harassed by Tom Watson and kidnapped by, by Jack Nicholas. You actually said bullied by Tom Watson to me and kidnapped by Jack Nicholas. Um, yeah, yeah. And John, look, your relationship with Tom, you, you wrote a, a fabulous book about, you know, his relationship with, with his late caddy, Bruce Edwards. You devoted a lot of time and energy to raise money uh, for the, the fight against ALS. Do you remember watching that episode of Faherty? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I was I I was a regular watcher of Faraday. Yes, was, as was I. As was anybody. Well, you didn't even have to care about golf. No, it was a very good show, regardless of golf or not. Um, but uh, yes, I remember watching it. I remember, I remember David sitting on a horse um, and looking very uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, and the, the only thing was that I, I knew, um, that David was an alcoholic. I knew Tom was an alcoholic. Um, so there were no shocking revelations to me, but I think most people watching that probably watched with their mouths open at the honesty of both men, um, about their addictions and about their lives. It was, it was a remarkable interview. And really, if you think about, if you think back on Faraday, um, David was a, a great interviewer, um, and I, I hope the show comes back. I know there's hope for it um, because it was so damn good. And uh, Golf Channel canceling it, of all the many dumb things Golf Channel has done, that may be the dumbest. John Feinstein, David Faraday with me. The book is Faraday, the remarkably funny and tragic journey of golf's David Faraday. David, it's interesting, during the, the course of, of this book, you know, John mentioned the closing of this one chapter, and it was significant that the period of your life when you made the decision, and, you, and it's chronicled in the book, going from CBS to NBC, it was, you know, the entry point was through Faraday because the language in your contract with CBS permitted you to do this type of show. I, as somebody who was hosting a show at yeah. Golf Channel at the time, was like, holy shit, we've got this guy now? And, and I, you know, having you come in studio, and it was, it was such a joy. But then it was also the, the ending of that period uh, of your life. When you, when you talked about 
leaving NBC and, and going on to live golf. Did you learn anything about the decision you made by simply talking to John about all of this? Yeah, I, you know, I think so. Life is about timing. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I felt like I'd, I'd reached, you know, I'd done everything that I wanted to do at CBS and, and uh, you know, the, the opportunity to be with NBC and be with a different crew and do something different and also have that relationship with the Golf Channel was uh it was phenomenal, and and I have no regrets about you know my time uh, with CBS or NBC. Um, but it it was uh, it, it was a good move for me again, you know, from from NBC uh, to live because I felt like I was at the end of of my career, um, and uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to be rehired or or any of that because you know. At the end of the CBS run, you know, they, they got rid of uh, McCord and Costas. And uh, at the end of the NBC run, they got rid of Gary Coke and Roger Maltby. You know, so, I mean, I could have been the third uh, uh, part of that equation in either uh, of those two instances. So uh, the opportunity to be a lead analyst at, at Live and, and to have another five years at, at least uh, it was just a phenomenal opportunity for me. John, one of the things that you capture in the book is talking about how it all started. And for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's great to learn about, you know, it was, it was accidental. It's the international. It's a great event out in Denver. And, and you, they always dealt with, with lightning and weather delays. So there was a delay after what I believe was, it was in the first round. Right. McCord walks into the locker room, and David is doing what he's apt to do expertly, and extemporaneously, he's holding court, and and fair and and McCord's like Jesus. This guy is this guy's hilarious. I know we're going to have weather tomorrow. Maybe I'll bring him up in the tower where guys used to actually go out in towers on hole assignments. Um, did you know any of that stuff before all that was shared? No, I knew that Gary had played an important role in bringing David to TV and to CBS, but I didn't know that specific story until he told me that. By the way, uh, just sidebar jim nance told me that before the international every year in their production meetings they would discuss how they were going to deal with the lightning <laughs> delays because they were inevitable um but gary was was like you said was in the locker room it was during a rain delay david was just sitting around telling stories the way really only david can uh and, and gary you guys had never met right david gary had never met you um david was struggling yeah that's right point as a golfer with injuries, with his drinking, with the end of his first marriage, which was a disaster, as we know. Um, and Gary walked up to him and introduced himself and said, what you just said, Gary, it's going to be a long day tomorrow. Why don't you come and sit with me in the tower for a couple hours? And David eventually figured, I got nothing to lose, and showed up. And he walked into the tower just in time to hear Gary telling Frank Trichinian, the Ayatollah of CBS Golf, <laughs> that he'd invited David to come up. And he said, what are you talking about? I don't want that crazy guy in my booth. And, but Frank, to his credit, the, the term, the term he used was, I don't want that Irish prick in my booth. <laughs> I don't know why he thought you were a prick. Yeah, I don't either. That doesn't, that doesn't apply. Maybe, but not a prick. Yeah. But, uh, well, but that was just Frank. Yeah, that was Frank. Um, I, I sat in in the ta- in the uh, uh, in in the the uh, production truck yeah. on a number of occasions, and it was more entertaining than watching the telecast by a lot. 
But uh, he relented. And as they were walking down the steps afterwards, Gary said to David, this is what you're going to do next. And I hope you'll keep CBS in mind. And the way that came about was, of course, Ben Wright had to leave CBS because of his comments about women, women players. And they were looking for a replacement for Ben Wright. And, and David was sitting at a bar in Akron during the World Series of Golf and yeah. described it because he was still an athlete. He was drinking Gatorade <laughs> with his vodka. And uh, Lance Barrow and Rick Gentile walked up to him and said, we're from CBS. Can we talk to you for a moment? And David's first thought was, oh, God, CBS is doing a 60 Minutes piece on alcoholic athletes. And that's why they want to talk to me. Fortunately, they wanted to talk to him about a job. You know, first of all, you're you're not the only one who did the Gatorade and the Gatorade and the vodka thing. You're not original. Um, <laughs> I, I could I can pro I can promise you that hand raised. Um, but but that meeting in the Akron Hotel bar, yeah. David, to me was was pretty damn significant because you admitted to them that yeah, drinking's an issue, and you told them I'll never drink on the air, and you never did, which is a damn miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the thing that uh, it was actually Jack Graham um, at ABC that uh, gave me my uh, my first gig on TV, because in between the uh, incident at uh, the International with McCord and me signing with CBS, um, I went to trial um, with uh, and I worked with Ben Wright. Um, and Wayne Riley and uh, a few others. Uh, Jack Graham was the producer of the, I can't remember, it was a Johnny Walker event, was it? Yeah, Johnny Something Walker. Something like that. Right. Uh, you know, I, so, yeah, and trial in Jamaica. And um, then, uh, you know, I, I'd qualified for the World Series of Golf. I'd won a tournament in some communist country. I can't remember where it was. And um, United States. that's when the CBS... Uh, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. No, no, I never won in, in the United States. But um, yeah, it was it was a significant meeting, that's for sure. Um, and I mean, I told them that I had a problem, and and you know, Lance Barrow looked at me, God bless him, and uh, you know, he said, uh, "Hey, you know, we have Pat Summerall <laughs> and Ben Wright, and uh, you know, they they were used to dealing with people who had this particular problem, shall we say." And Kenny, yeah, Kenny. That 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 group, David. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, pe people know about Pat Summerall's, you know, troubles and challenges. And then eventually, he he had to stop drinking. He was going to die otherwise. Um, but that group, I mean, if you historically speaking, you know, I think of the ABC crew from the '80s into the early '90s. I mean, that was that was like the '27 Yankees lineup. But that that CBS crew that you joined with the young Nance and with with obviously Summerall with Venturi McCord becoming what he did. Um, was that intimidating in any way? Or were you just like, I got nothing to lose here? You no, know, it, it was intimidating. You know, these guys were I, I felt, you know, the best at, at what they did. You know, they described golf in, in a different way. And, and, you know, for me to fit into it um, and, and be myself. Uh, was uh, it was an intimidating thought, you know? But, but you know, they made it they made it easy for me. Lance Barrow made it easy for me, um, and 
you know, it, I, I kind of slipped into the role uh, almost immediately um, that uh, that Ben had, had filled with Gary, um, you know, because we got along so well and uh, had, you know, similar outlooks on, on life, I think. I think uh, just to add to that, Gary, the two two guys were were key for David, uh, in my opinion. Uh, one was, as he said, Lance Barrow, because Lance was the one who made the decision to put him on the ground and not put him in a tower yep. and have him walk with the last group. Um, and and David was unique in the way he, he dealt with that because the players liked him. Even Tiger Woods liked him. Um, and the other guy was Gary uh, because he was able to draw out David's humor with his own humor. And, and the two of them are still close friends. Um, and, and I think people recognized right away that what they were seeing was like nothing you had ever seen in TV golf when, when David joined the CBS crew. No, it's absolutely true. You know, John, you mentioned David's interviewing ability. And it's one thing it's one thing to do three minutes in a post round interview and ask somebody a couple thoughts about, you know, the key moments in a round. It's another thing to sit down with these interview subjects for what turns into an hour show. But is was way beyond that. The editing gets it to to 60 minutes and, and so on and so forth. But. I, I want you to explain to me your theory on why he's such a good interviewer. I have my own, but it, and this is somebody who admittedly has attention issues and has had them his whole life and is part of, you know, the, the, the challenge with, with shame and, and feeling the way that he felt as a kid. Why do you think he's such a good interviewer? Well, first of all, uh, he's very smart. And if you're smart, you know how to follow up. Uh, during an interview, you know, a lot of times I'm sure you've experienced this, David, you probably have too. People will say, can you send me a list of questions before you interview somebody? Yep. My answer always is no, because I don't know what my second question is going to be until I hear the answer to the first question. Um, but also I, I have a son who's ADD, so I, I, I'm familiar with it. And ADD people tend to be a, as I said, very smart but when they want to focus, when they really are in, interested in something, they can what's called hyper-focus. Mike Krzyzewski, the Duke basketball coach, hyper-focused when he was watching tape. The rest of the time, he couldn't focus at all. He told me he's never read a book from beginning to end. Um, and ADD affects different people differently. But the other thing was, two other things. One, the interviewees trusted and liked David. I mean, Bill Clinton asked to be on the show, a former president, um, and so did many others. And the other thing was, as I said, David never came in with this list of questions and he was going to ask them in order no matter what. He would listen to the answer and then follow up based on the answer. So they, I think in a sense being unscripted, but coming in very prepared in terms of the person's background, who he was, what you wanted to ask him, that combination made for very good interviewing, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with that. My, what I would add to that, David, is this, and I think it's, it's because it's who you are. Listening is a very unselfish action. You don't have to. And one of the things that I was struck by when I was around Roy McIlroy for the first time, I remember coming back to Golf Channel. He was 21, and you've known him, you know, basically his whole life. And I said to people, I said he's a good listener, which surprised me. One, because he's an athlete and he's been put in this position, but also he's an only child. 
And I said, that's unselfish. He doesn't have to listen to me. And my dad used to say to me, hearing is a sense, Gary. Listening is a skill. A skill is only refined if you want to impart, you know, the time and effort to do that. You're unselfish. You're, that's the way you are. So did, did doing the long-form interviews seem to be not easy, but something that you were attracted to because it was natural? Yeah, well, John put it fairly well in that, you know, the attention deficit side of me um, is, uh, you know, the ADD. I mean, I, w- I was interested in my subjects. Um, you know, I, I got to pick, uh, for the most part, I got to pick my, the people that I wanted to interview. Um, you know, some people wanted to be interviewed the other way around, but I was always interested in, in my subject, you know, and, and that's why, you know, the focus was there. Um, you know, I, I wasn't so scatterbrained. And the other thing uh, was I had fantastic people that worked for me, you know, David Haas, you'll, you'll know uh, a bunch yep. of them, Keith uh, Keith Allo, Dean Butler, Jay Kossoff, James Ponty. Uh, you know, I, I had fantastic researchers and, and people that, that worked behind the scenes on that show that made it so much easier for me, uh, you know, to ask questions and, and to be able to have the luxury of being, being able to listen, uh, you know, the way that I did. John, when, when David made the decision uh, to go over to live, um, and it's, it, you know, you didn't know this was going to happen and you're, nope. you're, you're in the middle of this. I've never asked you your thoughts about live. Well, let me say first, I wasn't in the middle of it. I was just about at the end. Um, right, right. When it happened and I, I texted David and I said, you mean to tell me I have to rewrite the last two chapters of this book <laughs> so you can make a couple million measly extra dollars? And he texted back and said, it's not a couple million measly extra dollars. (laughs) And by the way, good for him. And what my feelings on Liv are, first of all, uh, it's very easy to sit back and say, oh, I never would have taken that money because of who it came from. But the kind of money that was being offered, as Harold Varner III said very eloquently, this is generational money. David did not know what his future was with NBC. Uh, he had one year left on his contract. They had taken away the Golf Channel show. Uh, and here comes Greg Norman saying, I want you to be our John Madden. Hard for me to sit back here and say, well, I never would have done that because I don't know what I would have done. Um, I, there's a pretty good chance I would have said, OK, I'll, I'll take the money. Um, and I'm glad for David because he loves loves the telecasts and, and, and they're, they're going to grow over time inevitably. Uh, I think eventually there has to be some kind of merger that allows the best players to play against one another uh, uh, the the way they should. Um, but uh, overall, uh, I am happy for David because David is happy. And David's my friend. And I, I, I want him to be happy. Uh, it did create more work for me, <laughs> I have to admit. But... It, it's part of the story. So obviously we had we had to include it and we did. David, um, it's in the book about how Greg Norman called your wife. Um, you knew why he was calling. This wasn't, hey, this wasn't, hey, how you doing? We haven't chatted for a while. Uh, you knew the nature of the call. Um, and, and, you know, it, it seems to me in the way that it was presented by 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 John in the writing is that wasn't if the number was right. 
it was going to be right. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and even if the number hadn't been that right, you know, this was something that I wanted to do, Gary. Uh, I mean, I've known Greg for so many years, and, and I, I know that he has tried to do this, you know, since the, since the 90s. Um, he has wanted to, you know, make the, the game more global. And um, was when was it, John? 1994. Yeah. Yeah, that he tried for that world. 94. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, I mean, the best part of 30 years, you know, Greg had been trying to do this, you know, and he'd been a great friend. And, you know, just to, to think of me, uh, you know, to have that sort of faith in me, you know, absolutely. I was going to say yes, you know, for whatever. One of the things that, that John captures in the book, which I didn't know this, my intuition told me that not that it was an unhappy experience to do this annually, was that, that, that like when you were at CBS, the Masters week, it was like there, there's such restraint associated with, with that exercise, no matter who it is, but in particular you. And then beyond that, like you being liberated, like I felt like Faraday, the show, that was you. And that more and more, John, of, of golf broadcast television had become a lot less of that. And that he couldn't be him. That's the way I felt the last, oh, I don't know, five, six years, to be honest. Well, I don't think that anybody is actually him uh, during a Masters telecast. Uh, I remember the eight pages of instructions that we used to get when I worked for Golf Channel. Um, and I, the irony, though, is that David never felt completely comfortable at Augusta. Part of it was that he had to work out of a tower when he was used to working on the ground. Nobody's allowed to work on the ground at the Masters. But interestingly, both Lance Barrow, who was David's executive producer at CBS, and Tommy Roy, who was his producer at NBC, thought he was great at the Masters because he was able to find a balance between playing by all the, the Augusta rules and being David. He was still more David than anybody else, even though he wasn't completely David. And, and I, I, I found it interesting that even though he was never completely comfortable there, um, people liked what he did at Augusta. He didn't like what he did at Augusta. Uh, I, I just wrote this down. I, I'm not sure if it was you, David, describing it to John or John, the way you, the, the, you transcribed it. This to me is an expert explanation of the difference between Lance Barrow, the longtime producer at CBS and Tommy Roy. And it, and it reads, Lance was a TV guy who was very good at doing golf. Tommy was a golf guy who was very good at doing TV. David, were those your words? I'm pretty sure it was, right? They were David's words, absolutely. Yeah. That's too yeah. smart for me to say. Well, I, I you know, as somebody who I, I, I didn't work directly with either one of them, was around both of them a fair amount. I've never, John, I've never heard anybody describe it better than that. No, that no, that no, that's the perfect description, and that's why I said uh, it had to be from David because it's too smart for me to say. I'm not that <laughs> smart. David, now with 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 the the broadcast of of look, all these guys balls are in the air at all times on a PGA Tour event. But this is this literally is you know everybody's teeing off at the same time. Um, 
you know, it's, it's one less round. Do you feel somewhat liberated? Do you feel like you are reclaiming maybe things that, not that you lost, but were not necessarily as permissible now in doing what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you know, I feel like I can I can be myself uh, a bit more. You know, on the telecast, there's a looser sort of uh, uh, a structure to the, you know, and it's uh, it's just been a liberating experience for me. You know, the, the fact that I'm lead analyst, you know, uh, that I can, you know, have a little more say in what actually goes on of my own you know, aspect, you know, uh, uh, towards the show as as well. John, um, you know, he's David said this earlier, but I, I, I have to just touch on it because it's important. It, it's it's talked about uh, in detail, and that is the the death uh, of David's son. And in in writing about the subjects that you've written about for decades and decades, there's difficult stuff that you've you've had to deal with the loss of a child is is so profound it's unimaginable to those of us who've not had that experience um talking about it listening to him listening to others um what was the thing that 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 stands out most well gary unimaginable is the word um for for anybody the hardest book i'd ever written prior to this, the sections about um, Shay in this book was uh, Caddy for Life, because I was watching a friend, also a friend of David's, Bruce Edwards die uh, while I was writing and reporting the book. Um, but that's nothing compared to losing a child. And, and I think it was not only brave of David to talk about it to me, but also very brave of his family members, uh, Anita, his wife, and his, his two children, uh, Rory and and uh, Aaron, um, they were very honest about it and honest about how it affected David. Um, they pulled no punches. Um, Rory was kind enough to send me a copy of the eulogy he gave for his brother, which is heartbreaking to read. Um, and David, I don't honestly know how much you remember about it because you were in, as everybody said, such a frozen state at that point. But it was it was a wonderful eulogy. Um, yeah. I felt through the four of them, I, I, I got to know Shay, um, a little bit. And, uh, as I said, I'm grateful to all of them for that. I'm starting to get choked up. I'm sorry. Um, because uh, of their courage in in, in dealing with the subject and being willing to deal with the subject with me, especially the, the children, because they didn't know me at all. David at least knew me. Uh, Anita knew me a little bit, um, but they 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 were all very open and, and willing on, on, like you said, the most difficult subject that can occur in a lifetime. David, he succumbed to something that you live with, as we talked about earlier. Um, the, the idea of recovered, recovering, it's a disease that can be treated. It can't be cured. Um, it's It's right around the corner. You know it. I know it. Um, is is there anything about knowing that that brings brings any comfort at all to you, or just solace in any way, knowing that the disease is so hideous and so relentless, you can be you can be fine for ten years. 
and and vulnerability is is a blink of an eye away. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was fine for for ten years, you know, and um, it, it's just you know something like this uh, is, is such a a gut punch, and uh, you know dealing with depression. Uh, which, you know, I, I've had for most of my life, you know, people ask me, you know, well, I mean, you know, what's the difference between that and sadness? Um, you know, depression is sadness minus hope. Mm. And uh, that was the hardest part, you know, uh, for me, you know, just, you know, the thought of him having, having no hope, uh, um, you know, to where he had to deal with his life with, with drugs to the extent that the, that he did the um and for you yourself you know john mentioned it earlier look everybody's different how they treat whatever it is that they've got um and and some people are are good doing it in a therapeutic way and some people respond to aa um with you you have you have gone you know head first into different things and if people read this and they go, gosh, really, is he really, it, 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 you know, he's going to a shooting range. And obviously he's being very responsible, but that is his way of dealing with it. Um, is that the only way for you? You know, shooting for me is, is kind of therapeutic. You know, it, it's, it's long distance uh, shooting. I, I build the rifles myself. You know, I make the ammunition uh, and I give the rifles to wounded service members um after having you know shot them myself you know to make sure that they're all right you know so it, it's kind of you know i get down there by myself and you know we have a private range that's out to a mile and um you know i it's something that interests me so you know i have that hyper focus um and that uh, kind of mentality where you know it's something that i'm good at um and uh you know it, it absorbs me i i find it compelling um you know, the, the whole, uh, just the, the whole, everything about the, the, the sport, you know, it, uh, it, it absorbs me, you know, the way that golf used to. John, when and you were, yeah, go ahead. To, let me add, Gary, the way that bicycling used to until David was yep. in several accidents that made him incapable of bike, biking yes. miles a day that he used to bike. You know, it, David mentioned something earlier, John, about how he mentioned about when he was the the whole episode with Watson and Nicholas and how his inclination and it's the inclination of somebody who's in the throes of 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 addiction. They're they're in pursuit of isolation that that just get me back to my room is what he said. And 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 I can promise you, I've never I've never shared this before. Um, And and. When I relapsed a couple years ago, one of the last people I saw, he won't remember this, I was walking into a hotel room in White Plains at the U.S. Open. And who was walking out of the elevator was David Faraday. And instead of engaging him and talking to him, I was already gone. I hadn't had anything to drink, but, but my relapse had already begun because I had allowed my recovery to become dysfunctional. Um, and I, I say that as a prelude. Do you worry about him? And I, I, he's, he's obviously sitting right here so he can hear this, but I'm asking you as somebody who spent so much time with him. Well, the honest answer is yes. Um, and, and I'm not the only one by any stretch. Um, and David describes his day-to-day life as being a white-knuckle ride 
to stay sober. Uh, and again, uh, having watched my mom deal with it, having had other friends like you yeah. um, who've dealt with it, uh, of course I worry about him um, because he is my friend, because I do care about him, and because I know, because he's told me, <laughs> that every day is a challenge for him. And that every day, part of his day is sadness, um, in large part because of Shay. Because uh, let's be honest, you don't ever completely recover from that sort of thing. And, and I remember I was lucky enough to interview Bill Clinton for this book. And he said to me that he was one of the first people to call David after Shay's death. And um, he was. He, yeah. And, and, and he said they talked a long time and he kept trying to say to David, Look, you, you, you don't blame yourself for this. Don't put this on yourself. And he said, but I'm a father, too. And I knew and I know that there's no way he's ever going to stop blaming himself because he's a father. Mm. And so, yes, I do worry about David. I, I love getting the chance to see him. Um, but, yes, absolutely. Anybody who knows David and cares about David worries about him. David, I, 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 there's nothing that John just said that I would push back on at all. The only thing I would add is that, that you know how, how devious and relentless the disease is. So nobody can keep you sober, just like nobody could keep him. It is, it is, it is a singular yeah. pursuit that you need. You need unwavering support, obviously. Um, you try to remind yourself of that, don't you? Yeah, you know, I, I do. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm not a recovering alcoholic. Gary, I'm, I'm a dry drunk. And, uh, there's, a, there's a big difference there. Um, you know, and every day for me is, uh, is difficult um, in, in those terms. And I don't have perfect attendance. Um, it's, uh, it's a continuous uh, struggle. And I wish, you know, that I, I could uh, could be a recovering alcoholic, but it's just in my nature uh, for some reason. Well, I, I can tell you, for anybody who's who just heard that and they're going, "What's the difference?" Um, that that admission and that honesty is so damn um, it's it's powerful as hell. Uh, to hear you, it, very important, it, vitally, vitally, critically important um, to know the distinction and, and the admission is is extraordinary. Uh, John, you know, when you write books, um, you know, I don't know how you feel at the end of all of them. There, there's got to be different emotions. And I wrote down a bunch that maybe you felt maybe you felt all of them. But when you finished this project, did you feel happy, sad, concerned, inspired, what were the things that you, you felt most? I think those are all good words to use. I was happy that we had gotten through the process uh, and that I was able to, to write the book. I, I, I hope I did a good job. I, I always, in a case where I'm writing about uh, either one individual or a small group of individuals, I, I, I hope my storytelling lives up to their story. Uh, and that and with David, that's a challenge because his story is is so remarkable. Um, I certainly felt sadness for all the reasons that that we've discussed, and and I felt I felt sad that my friend has gone through what he's gone through, mm. um, particularly with Shay. 
Um, I felt inspired by the fact that David has overcome so much um, to be sitting here right now. Um, and also by uh, Anita, because as David has said many times, he probably wouldn't be alive today if not for her. Um, and concerned, uh, yes, of course, for all the reasons we just discussed a moment ago. So all those words fit in different ways. Um, David, let, let's end this in, in a, in, with a little bit of levity here. Uh, the show itself, John mentioned, you know, hopefully it, it coming back. Do you feel like there's, there's, that that's plausible, that, that Faraday in the form that we knew it uh, could return again? Because I know how much joy it gave you. Yeah, it, uh, it it was a wonderful 10 years of, of, of my life. Um, and uh, I hope, uh, I, I don't think it'll come back in the same form, but, you know, at Live, we're talking about, uh, you know, coming up with the show and we're kicking various ideas around. And, and next year, we hope to have something that'll that'll air, you know. Well, Just don't do that situation comedy that, that you did before. <laughs> no, no, it won't be that. <laughs> oh. Well, I... Um... Oh, no. No. <laughs> as I as I as I I hold up the book for the people who are who are watching, um, it is um, it's well worth it. Um, it's worth it because, as John, you pointed out at the beginning, and it couldn't be more true. The reason why people continue to stand by this man's side is because there's such goodness in him. There is such a, a selfless quality to you. You've always been exceedingly kind to me, um, which is not unusual. That's what you are with people. Uh, this book is is worth the time to learn uh, about a great journey, but a journey that's been fraught with with challenges and obviously with profound tragedy. Um, I appreciate both of you, not only for taking the time, but just uh, for, for being there for me at various times in my life. David, John, thank you both for doing this. Gary, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Appreciate John Feinstein and David Faraday joining me again. And yes, this is the book about David's life. And it's it's the full capturing of not only his young life, but also the best years of his playing career. And of course, the transition to broadcasting, the battles with addiction and the disease of alcoholism, depression, and of course, the, the tragic and profound death of his son. All of that captured um, with total transparency in this book. I highly recommend it. I appreciate them, but most importantly, appreciate everybody out there for listening and watching this edition of the Five Clubs Conversation. We'll see you next week.